Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to the Ideas Roadshow podcast. I'm Howard Burton, your host and creator of Ideas Roadshow, and I'm delighted to be partnering with the New Books Network to offer you our uniquely eclectic blend of long-format conversations with a wide array of experts across many different subjects. The following discussion is a reformatted podcast version of one of Ideas Roadshow's first 100 film conversations that's available in print as both an individual ebook and as part of a five conversation collection in ebook and paperback. Visit ideasroadshow.com for more details. It's notoriously difficult to measure to what extent a society has actually progressed from generation to generation, or century to century, not least of which because it naturally involves a careful definition of what exactly we actually mean by progress in the first place, a topic that's often hard to come to any real consensus about. But one of the few points that virtually everyone agrees on is that the creation of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights in the mid-20th century, complete with all the various treaties and policies of the United Nations to safeguard human rights, is an unequivocally positive improvement in our collective moral development. But as UC San Diego human rights specialist Emily Hoffner Burton pointedly reminds us, the key question that we now need to ask, and ask repeatedly, is how well does all this actually work? And how can we make it work much better still? So I'm going to start off by asking you a little bit about how you got into the field. And in particular, I have a very specific question, which is how did you become a blacksmith? (laughs) So I'll answer the blacksmith question first, and then I'll tell you about (laughs) human rights. Um, It was somewhat by accident. I did an undergraduate degree in philosophy and political science, and I loved school. But I wanted to do something else on the side. And I loved jewelry, and I loved working with my hands. And I was completely naive that I thought one day I had one of my best friends who told me his father was a blacksmith. And I thought, well, this is really interesting. And I had been working with gold and silver and precious metals. I didn't have any money as a college student at all. I had a scholarship to pay my way through school. Where did you go to school? I went to a small, tiny Jesuit university called Seattle University. Located in Capitol Hill in Seattle, it was great. And so I thought, well, why don't I try working in steel because it'll be so much cheaper? And how would I do this? So I called this guy, the father of this friend of mine who I'd never met, and said, I'm one of your son's best friends, and he tells me you're a blacksmith, and I'm interested. And he said, okay, do you know how this works? And I said, I have no idea how this works. And this was, hold on, this was to make jewelry and stuff like mm-hmm. this? Is this? Yes, this is why I was an undergraduate. Because when I think blacksmith, I think shoeing horses. That's ultimately, well, that's a farrier. So he was a man who did that, but he was also a man, he did not call himself an artist, but he was an extraordinary artist. Large-scale fences, amazing pieces of art. And he was married to a woman who had an MFA who did goddess sculpture. So he was doing horseshoes and machinery and fences, and she was doing goddess sculpture. And he essentially said, well, you come, you move here, you come to my shop, you work for 10 bucks an hour, you sweep my floors, and I'll teach you the trade. And that's how it works. You were an apprentice. I was an apprentice. And I apprenticed with him. I apprenticed with her. I went back to school. Then the following summer, I went back. I apprenticed again. I apprenticed with a very funny guy who did Ren Ren Fairs, Renaissance festivals. So he did all the blacksmithing, but in the original tools. So coal forge instead of gas forge, no power hammers, everything by hand. It was like musicians who play by original instruments. Yes. So I apprenticed. And then when I graduated from undergraduate, I wasn't entirely certain what I wanted to do. And I had these skills, 
and I went to work for a, a blacksmith shop for one year full time. Yeah. I did blacksmithing. I did all the metal finishing. We did the interior of Bill Gates' home, for example, and this was large-scale structural. I was no, no longer making goddess sculptures sure. and bracelets. It was large-scale structural beds and chandeliers. And cool. So how long did you do this for? Did you do this for? Well, so the apprenticing part was, I think, over a period of three or four years, and then I worked full-time for one year. And then I came to the conclusion that that wasn't, and I knew that in advance, but that wasn't what I wanted to do for the rest of my life, and so I made a career choice which is ultimately how I got to human rights later okay. on. Yeah, well, so I want to get back to that, but um, <laughs> just indulge me for, for yes. a moment. Because I can see, uh, or at least I can speculate, somebody does a degree in philosophy and in political science and whatever, uh, these areas, then takes a bit of a turn and gets into this artisan world. And I can imagine getting deeper and deeper into this artisan world as opposed to all of a sudden saying, that's enough, or, or, or I'm not stimulating myself intellectually, or, or what? what? What's going through your mind when you say, because you kind of glossed over that and said, that's enough, and now I'm moving over here. Yes. What's, what's happening? Many different things. So my intellectual life is very important to me, and I have very little of it at that period of time. It was really fatiguing to do the job, so I would get up at 6 o'clock in the morning. Right. I would work physical, manual, incredible labor, come home at 5 p.m. exhausted. Right. And the last thing I was going to do was pick up a philosophy book and think about Plato's ruminations on the world. Uh, and I missed that part of it. There was another part of it which was, um, for me, very clear was that I didn't enjoy always serving the needs of the others who would come in with sometimes crazy ideas. So people would come to us and with no appreciate appreciation for the art uh, behind it. And they would ask us to match chandeliers to their client's wallpaper, for example. And that was great fun for a year. It was a challenge right. to do that. I would make chests look like they had been under the ocean for 3,000 years, that kind of thing. But at the end of the day, it wasn't my artistic creation. It was my handiwork to right. facilitate someone else's desires. And it was great. But I got bored with that after a little while. Right. And I didn't always appreciate the aesthetic qualities of some of the clients that I was serving. Right. And I wanted to come home and do my own artwork, and I was so tired I couldn't do it. And I didn't spend my weekends doing my own sculpture. I spent my weekends recovering from the week. I see. So even on the, even on the I was going to say, non-intellectual side, but not non-reading side, as it were, even in the handicraft side of things, you weren't able to have enough time to express yourself in exactly what I you was too exhausted to, to do it, yeah. yeah. There was another part of it which I'll say I, I really appreciated very much, but I was also glad to walk away from, which was that it was a world so different from anything that I ever knew. I spent my daily breakfast, lunch, and dinner with people whom I would never otherwise have an opportunity to meet with. So half of the shop, for example, were guys from Boeing who had been fired from Boeing who were metal fabricators. Yeah. Racist, homophobic, you know, people who I would not go and have a drink with in a bar um, because our ideological visions on the world were so different and our backgrounds were so different. And I actually loved that for the time that I was working there because I was surrounded by just incredible difference. And hmm. so I learned a lot um, in that period of time. At the end of one year, I was also pretty glad. Sure, you learned to, enough. I learned <laughs> enough. I was pretty glad to remove myself from that environment. And it is also the case that there are very few women in that world. I would think so. And that became challenging for me after a particular period of time. So I gained a lot from it, and then I knew that I was ready to leave. Cool. I'm just going to go off camera for a sec. 
I'm a little bit worried because it's very hot here about like a little bit of glow or perspiration or anything like that. Is is everything okay or does it look does it look fine? No, I can uh, grab. A I think you should. Uh, I, I I can dab myself. Yeah, I think I. I, oh, I yeah, yeah. Is there a box of Kleenex over there? Thank you. I think you. It, uh, in retrospect, it would probably <laughs> be better just for you. That's all. Uh, Is there sugar in I don't know. Well, no, I think we'll be okay. But I, I think can it's also take my jacket off. But then you'll have whatever. Problems. No, whatever you want, because I know you're not feeling well. I'm just. I, I'm always sensitive to this because I'm picking it up from the guests, so I want you to. As, as, as good as possible. If you feel like you want to, or whatever it is, just go ahead, um, especially while I'm, I'm talking, because okay. um, I don't really care. Um, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> um, so then from there, you, so I, this is just from the preface of your book that yes. I read, right? So I'm thinking, uh, this one is a blacksmith, that just came completely out of, out of left field, and then it's, Okay, I was uh, I did this degree, then I was a blacksmith, then I went off to Geneva and worked in, in <laughs> and I that's just not the way my life went. But okay, other people have different career paths. Um, so now you're a blacksmith. You you I understand why you want to leave or your apprentice to a blacksmith. And how do you wind up in Geneva working for an NGO? Uh, it is an NGO, right? Is it, that, is it, that I started an NGO and then moved to a think tank. That's, that's right. right. Yeah. I knew I was going to make the transition. I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I knew I wanted to be in politics because that's where my heart lay. I wasn't entirely certain what nature, but I knew it was going to be global. I knew that I wanted to focus on something international. And so I literally went to the library and I applied for every single job, fellowship, application that I could find in the newspaper. I scoured in France, in England, in Switzerland, in the United States. I scoured globally. And I applied for dozens and dozens of positions, and I won. I won a fellowship that was extraordinary. It was this non-governmental organization, a women's group that's dedicated towards peace and disarmament. And they hired me. They flew me to Geneva, and they put me in charge of advocating for disarmament, uh, especially in the area of non-proliferation. So to whom? Who, who, who were you advocating to? So the job was to get up in the morning and go to the United Nations where there was the Conference on Disarmament, where various treaties are being negotiated. So that's where the Treaty on Nonproliferation is constantly being renegotiated. That's where the Chemical Weapons Treaty was created, biological weapons, and so right. forth. And so I would go to the conference, and I would observe the proceedings, and then I would spend my evenings being invited to the various ambassadors' homes and delegations where all of the actual work would occur. Everything's translated in the United Nations, so by the time you get into the actual proceedings, nothing spontaneous is happening sure. whatsoever. All the business happens at the end of the day. And so I would get invited to their various cocktail parties, literally. And um, these invitations is where, are where the conversations would occur. And I would try and get a sense of in the negotiations. So for example, we were I was there in the mid-1990s at the time that the non-proliferation treaty was up for a reevaluation every mm -hmm. five years that happens. And so all the countries are in the back room trying to figure out, well, is anything going to change? Uh, what's Russia's position? What's France's position? And all that is happening in these cocktail parties. And so my job was to literally gossip with these individuals, then I would go home late at night, work on helping write up policy briefs about what was likely to happen, uh, and that would be given into the hands of the advocates who could then lobby the different governments on different positions. Cool. So I spent, I spent a period of time 
doing that. Did you find you were skilled at that? Did you find that you, you enjoyed that, that it, it resonated, uh, at least in the beginning, with, with some of your interests? I found it incredibly hard, and maybe this is a corollary to our conversation about blacksmithing, but it was a world of all men. 164 ambassadors at the time that I were there. Only four of them were women. So the blacksmith thing I can understand. Yes, 160, 160 of the 164 were men. Hmm. Very interesting smart men, away from their families, oftentimes, in Geneva and their residences for long periods of time. Hmm. And the job was to be there with them till 1 o'clock in the morning hmm. at cocktail parties. And while I liked the strategic part of it, while I thought it was very interesting, the game of trying to get information from various people and piece it together, I was 25 at the time that I was there, and it was a very difficult work environment um, for me. So needless to say, my dreams of going in there and staying at the United Nations changed after a period of time, and I realized this is not, not an environment that I want to be in, or certainly not at the level that I am. Yeah. And that's actually what made me determine that I would eventually go to graduate school and I would get some higher degrees. But it's there, it's there that I that, that human rights started because my job was to focus on nonproliferation mm -hmm. and disarmament. But at the same time that that was going on, all the human rights machinery at the United Nations was going on, and I had many friends who were working in those institutions. And I was there to help these advocates. And there's a tremendous advocacy community in Geneva, obviously, since the United Nations is there based on human rights. And so I began going to these meetings. I began observing what actually took place inside the United Nations around human rights. And it completely blew my mind. It was the exact opposite of what I had expected to see. And I walked oh, so away. Well, I suppose the, the part that I had expected to see, which I did see, is that it's a tremendous system. So many dedicated advocates, so many protocols, so many documents, so many treaties, so many procedures. It's incredibly impressive when you look at the architecture of the infrastructure of this system. But I hadn't expected to see the politics behind it and the kind of pretty nasty politics that played into it, which is on the one hand, you have these well-meaning, highly organized advocates who have built this infrastructure. And on the other side, you have governments. And you have governments that, essentially, many of whom played charades, uh, right? That this was a farce in so many ways. You have those who were sincerely committed, that's very clear. Mm -hmm. That you have a whole host of governments that were signing onto these institutions, that were showing up to meetings, that were participating, making commitments. And the instant that these commitments became inconvenient, they simply walked out of the room. They simply walked away. They turned off uh, the ears to anything that the advocates or the victims had to say. And I don't know, I was naive, I was young, I was yeah. 25 well, years old, I was, I was but I, I had expected to see that the system worked better than it did. I and I saw both the incredible success of the advocates on the one hand, and really quite disturbing behavior by governments on the other. And when I left that system and I went to graduate school, that was the puzzle that in the back of my mind really irked me, right. which was, well, how can this be, and what do you possibly do about it? Um, and that's, that's really, honestly, what's motivated. It's been almost 20 years now. What's motivated most of my work in the area of human rights ever since then is thinking about, well, given that this is the reality, what do you do? Can you make this system better? And how do you get governments and societies to start protecting human rights right. when governments are simply going to walk away when it's not in their interest to do so? Really difficult problem. So as an outside observer, um, I was 
very captivated by your book because I thought, finally, here's somebody who's asking exactly those sorts of questions. So, and, and I guess what I'm going to come around asking you is whether finally is really the right word because I don't pretend to be an expert in this field, so I'd like to get some sense as to how unique that is and so forth. But for me, it was incredibly refreshing for somebody uh, who clearly understood the system, who clearly understood the full range of the infrastructure and the, the legalities and the, the systems, the international systems that have been put into place, who's also looking at it from the perspective of, is this actually working? Mm -hmm. Is it working as well as it, as it could be working? What could we do practically to actually be able to go forwards? Um, one hears a lot of hand-wringing, and I guess one doesn't hear hand-wringing, but one, <laughs> one sees, uh, maybe if your hands are particularly wet, one hears hand-wringing. But uh, what <laughs> Uh, one, one, one sees a lot of, uh, uh, of, of this, uh, there's a lot of verbiage that's out there. There are people who, who talk about how wonderful things are, there are people who talk about how horrible things are, there are people who say all sorts of different things, and, and I'm not suggesting that these people don't necessarily have the right motivations. Clearly, there are an awful lot of learned scholarly people who are looking at problems from all sorts of different angles, but at the back of your mind, you have this voice like, well, so what? I mean, nothing really, really works or at least it doesn't really, really work to the extent that we would like it to work. Every man on the street, every person, sorry, on the street, um, uh, I think has this sense of um, disappointment and anger that we all know that there are countries of the world that are signatories to conventions and treaties and, and declarations of human rights that transgress those very treaties and declarations of human rights. And the question is, what do we actually do about it? So. This is a long-winded way of coming around to a question, which, if you'll just uh, be patient, I'm eventually Please. going to do. Very patient. <laughs> um, so from my sense, this is really unique, that somebody who is a human rights scholar, who is somebody who's looking at things uh, from, from academe, is also looking at it in a very direct, applied way. What's working? What could be improved? How can we get better? And I guess I have two questions. So one is, is that really that unusual or is it just unusual to me because I don't hear about these sorts of things? And the other is how is that received by uh, members of, uh, of both sides, of people who are actually right in the pits as it were and people who are looking at it from a more academic persuasion? Mm -hmm. Very long question. Um, I told you. So yes, uh, and you're you right. Um, so I would say the following which is that when I started this work about 2015 or so now years ago, there were very few people who were asking this type of question. There were wonderful scholars who had been working on human rights, much of it from a very normative perspective, which is to say, we know that advocacy is good, so we're going to study the advocates and we're going to show you how advocacy is good. Or we know that non-governmental organizations are the drivers, the engines of human rights, and so we're going to prove to you that that's the case. All of which is correct. It's astounding if you think about the fact that we've invested for almost 70 years now in this system without really asking the question about whether or not these institutions and these structures are working. Are working. Yeah. I think there's a lot of reasons why we haven't asked those questions up until recently. Um, part of that has to do with it's really hard to answer that question. You can do it by anecdotes. You can do it by cherry-picking examples of success and failure. We've been doing that for 70 years. But that never gives you sort of fuller picture about, well, 
is that good news or bad news? Right? Yeah. What are the scope conditions? And so it's really been, in part, a transformation that's occurred in the social sciences, which has taken place in the last 15 years, where people have started to do things like not just interviews and cherry pick examples of successes and failures, but to collect big data sets sure. that will allow you to ask that question and to answer that question a little bit more systematically by looking at history and not just of one particular example, but of the example of the experience of all countries over decades of time. But why? I, I, I'm, uh, I'm confused by this. So I, I come from a, a scientific background. And to me, not a social science background, maybe a natural science background. And to me, that's just the obvious question that's in your face. You have to be asking that question. Is this thing working or is it not working? I mean, it would be like postulating a law of nature and never testing it, right? I mean, you, you, you have to do that. Um, there were people of a statistical persuasion for, for centuries. I mean, we, we understand some, we're getting better, of course, but we, the, the idea of basic statistics and modeling is not something which has only come along in the past 20 years. But there were very little data. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but there were very, okay. very, very few data. One of the difficulties in, in the realm of human rights right now, and we can talk about this in, in more detail if you're interested, is how you actually measure, where you get the information about whether abuses are happening and how you actually measure that yeah. in a way that is comparable across countries, comparable across time, potentially quantifiable. So while we had statisticians and techniques, we didn't have the data to really? actually do that, no. Okay. Uh, and the data that exists really originated um, starting in the 1970s through reports done by the US State Department for right. Congress and Amnesty International, which only in the 80s and 90s did scholars begin to know these reports existed, read and analyze these reports, and figure out strategies for quantifying how you could actually use these reports to compare instances across time uh, and across countries. Okay. And so, so it wasn't it was, a lack of political will so much, or, or, or what? I don't think so. I mean, I can say that in the advocacy community, nonetheless, doing this has been quite controversial. Nobody wants to hear that they've spent decades and decades building institutions that are highly problematical. These advocates are incredibly smart, uh, and they know that the institutions aren't working for the best. Right. Um, it's never been their primary motivation to assess the impact, right? It's funny because that's changed now, which is in the realm of advocacy when you talk to groups like Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch. They're all internally now interested in impact evaluation of their policies. This is new. This, didn't, this did not exist 20 years ago at the time that these reports were, were being produced. Okay. So the world has, has changed. So when I began this work, there, was very, there were a handful of other people who were doing similar work, but very few. Now it's an industry. My graduate students have jobs. Uh, I have colleagues, uh, all of whom are doing very interesting work at a much finer grain level uh, than some of the work that I've done myself that look at the nature of courts, that look at detailed variations in types of torture, all kinds of interesting data are being collected, the government has started to fund this, NSF is giving grants, and so on and well, that, so that's forth. That's what I want to also ask, and, and on the advocacy side, on the people on the ground, as it were, are they also, are attitudes changing there as well? Are they becoming uh, more susceptible to this way of thinking? Are they, are they very much embracing this notion that we have to look at efficacy of, of these sorts of uh, structures? I think it's absolutely clear that they understand that they need to look at efficacy uh, and, and that that revolution has occurred. What's not clear is how they're going to do it right. because the people who work in these organizations tend to be journalists. 
They tend to be people who have lived in country for many, many years on end. Um, they don't tend to be people who have sat, like myself, in front of computers for 15 years analyzing big data sets. So those skill sets don't necessarily transfer, but they know that they need to start hiring people who have those skill sets. Right. And they know that answering those questions is crucial, particularly those that are based on donations, because publics who are donating to these institutions want to know that these institutions are making a difference. Right. And that requires impact evaluation. So oh, it's a collaborative effort, and I think they're, they're starting to appreciate that, presumably. I, I think so, and I think over time it's clear that, for example, I'm working this, to start placing some of my students now in these organizations who come here to the policy school, who gain quantitative skills, and who are going to be valuable assets to these institutions because sure. they're advocates, they care about human rights, and now sure. they have skills to help um, evaluate the impact of policy. That said, it hasn't always been easy uh, in this process. I can give you some examples if you're interested of some work that uh, done by a friend of mine. You should assume that I'm interested. Okay. Keep who's a, who is a former, <laughs> former head of, uh, not former head, but former member of Human Rights Watch? Really smart guy, sociologist named James Run. And he decided that he would put together some data on information about who's getting shamed with regards to human rights. Because so much of how the human rights system works is through the provision of information. You do something bad. I find out about it, I collect information on you, and then I tell your peers and your superiors and anyone who can put pressure on you what you've done. And that's an important, that's the central enforcement mechanism that we use in the human rights system. So you better ask yourself where this information is coming from and whether the information is actually accurate and reliable. Because if it isn't, then the central mechanism is itself skewed. Absolutely. And it's a very important question. And it's dangerous. That and way. it could potentially be very dangerous. Yeah. Now, this is not to make any accusation against uh, these organizations such as Human Rights Watch and Amnesty who are full of committed activists sure. who want to save the world. And there's just no question about this. He went and he collected data on uh, every single report that uh, Amnesty International had published back since 1976. And he looked at all of the background reports that they had published. And he coded this information. And he compared this information to what we know about the actual level of respect happening inside different countries. And what he found is that there is a particular pattern to the countries and the issues on which these organizations are actually producing uh, and disseminating information, which is to say there are lots of bad situations out there where they're writing and producing reports. There are equally bad situations when you just look at it with regards to the number of people who are being tortured or killed on the ground, for example, that are not getting equal treatment. Nobody sat around in offices and said, ah, we're going to purposefully bias ourselves towards one versus the other. But it was the revelation that there is an inherent bias in that process. And that's very difficult for these organizations to have to hear. Right? Also very important. Um, so yeah. So uh, I mean, I, I want to clarify some of this and, and move towards a slightly different but I think related point. Um, when I said that I was excited when I looked at uh, making human rights a reality that somebody's looking at this and I thought, well, finally, someone's looking at the efficacy. Um, I guess I should say I didn't mean to imply that people who are involved on the ground, even from my ignorant perspective, are not passionately dedicated towards advancing the cause of human rights, or that they're stupid, or that they're, you know, that there's some cabal of people <laughs> who, are, who are doing something else. Um, it's, it, it, it just seems to me that um, one of the things, again, from a natural science perspective, is that often the truth um, of one's theoretical framework is uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. You often find things that you 
that you hadn't predicted. You find things that uh, that don't fit in with your framework, and that's part of the advancement of moving forward. So you just yeah, you just expect to find things and think, oh gosh, what's wrong about that? I guess we're going to have to move forwards. And and I think it, I would guess at some level, the people who are on the ground would be most resonant with that because the reason why they're there is because they're committed, they believe in, in, in the cause, and they would like to uh, advance uh, human rights. But I, I can see that there's a tension there. And what I was going to say is that in, in your writing, it seemed like you were very, very careful and aware of that. You would say frequently, you know, I'm not saying this, I'm not anti-law, I'm not anti-this, I'm not anti-that, I'm just trying to um, to structure things in a way where I can clarify what I think the key issues are that impede our particular progress in this in this area. So I'm reading between the lines a little bit of what you were writing and saying I'm guessing that there's a little bit of tension there and a little bit of conflict because this is a new new way of thinking for these people. And one thing in particular, resonate. Jump in anytime if you're good. Okay. Um, one thing in particular really resonated with me uh, because it was a it was a potential. Uh, opposition or conflict and ideas that I hadn't fully appreciated. So one was this notion of the universality of laws. This idea of, I think you call it global legalism, or, or, or this notion that we're all the same, we should all, uh, we, should, uh, we shouldn't distinguish between uh, any one person or any one country or, or any one effort. We shouldn't legally distinguish because of the fundamental equality of what it is that we're doing, which implies, I think, or has associated with it this idea of let's get as many countries as possible to join up with various treaties and so forth. And this notion that if, if we can't in any way distinguish um, between realms of application of the law or particular emphasis on one country as opposed to another country or one actor as opposed to another actor or subsets thereof because there is this principle of universality. And then on the other side, there is this sense of efficacy. Well, you know, maybe that's a noble idea and a noble goal, and maybe we'd like to get there. But in order to get there, we might have to take a somewhat different approach. Is it fair to say that that's a that's a major theme, or at least one theme that that you're it's thinking about? It's probably one of the most central, right? I mean, if you think about what the human rights system does, and it does so well, is articulate a notion for human dignity that nobody can really argue with. We know fundamentally now what human rights are, and they are for everybody. And it doesn't matter your nationality, it doesn't matter your sex, your race, your, race, your, your ethnicity, origin, language, or any other status. We, we know that. And the system has been especially helpful in articulating that. And it also tells us that these different types of rights that we have, not only do they belong to everybody, but they're indivisible. So you hurt the one, you hurt the other, you can't really pull them apart and separate them. And that is philosophically a very noble endeavor. The problem is that it's not a guide for how you actually implement these norms. And it is a complete impossibility to implement these norms as if they were actually universal. And that's in part because every actor who participates in the implementation of the system has their own interests yeah. in some part of the system and usually against other parts of the system for some of these norms, oftentimes against some of these other norms. Or it, when it becomes inconvenient, they want to put them to the wayside. So it is the inherent challenge of a system that presents us with these norms without clear indicators of how it is we're actually going to get those norms to be taken up in, in practice. And that means the process inherently has to be political. Yeah. It inherently can't be universal, and it has to be divisible. We have to set priorities. We have to make choices. Uh, and, and there's no way to avoid that. 
So the real question becomes, well, where do you get the information on which to make those decisions? Because it isn't the system itself that's going to tell you how to do it. The system has told you the opposite, right? right? So, so who, who decides? Is it the NGOs who decide? Well, they don't have any resources. Uh, and, and anyways, they are deciding because they're the ones who are providing information. Is it the states that decide? Is it the institutions that decide? Who makes these decisions? And there's no rule book uh, on this. And this is part of the fundamental difficulty and part of the tension, I think, in the human rights community between practitioners and advocates and the scholars and the researchers, all these different people coming from different perspectives, where we don't agree on what the answer to that question should be. And we don't even agree whether or not we should be having those conversations in public space or not. So that's confusing to me. So the first part is not confusing, uh, the fact that you, 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 there's widespread disagreement because these are very complicated issues and I don't think they've been framed, my sense is that they haven't been framed quite as candidly and as forthrightly as you've just done and, and you did in your book. Um, but I would say, well, bravo. I, it's important to do that. It's important to bring this out. And I would further speculate that in these cocktail parties that you were privy to long ago <laughs> and, and probably in cocktail parties that are happening right now, people are aware of this. They're having these sorts of, uh, of discussions there. These are, as you say, smart people. They know very well that there's a, uh, that there's a real conflict there in terms of how to move forwards. Why not just bring it out in the open? Why not have a, 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 a public, candid debate uh, about these sorts of things? I agree, and in essence, a good portion of the last half of the book was in some sense making the case for doing that. Organizations are doing this internally. Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, these, these global NGOs, they're having discussions uh, internally that are very important about how they set priorities. Sure. Those are not discussions that are happening in the broader public space, and those are discussions that look very different from the discussions that happen inside USAID, for example, about how they want to set their priorities. Uh, very different from what's happening inside the United Nations in terms of how they want to set their priorities. Lots of different interests in this process. We don't agree on what the metrics should be, right? So if you, if you just consider the fact that we're living in a world full of millions of people who in some form or another have human rights violated. Millions of people. How do you decide which are the people that you engage to try and help with rich resources and which are the people that get left behind. It's an incredibly difficult, morally, ethically challenging conversation to have mm -hmm. because the reality is no human rights advocate, whether it be the UN, whether it be states, whether it be NGOs, has either the resources or the interest to intervene in all situations. So they're all making these choices. The question is what's the metric? Right. Do you intervene in the situations that are the worst? because people are suffering so desperately that that's where you have to try. Do you intervene where there's public outcry? Because that's just a reality of politics, right? Governments need the backing of voters, uh, and if there's no public outcry, voters are not gonna support the intervention, and so do you go where the voters are telling you to go? Do you intervene based on some sense of what's likely to be most effective? What will help save the most lives or help reduce suffering the most, even if it's not in the worst situations. And we could come up with a longer laundry list, but you can see on the surface of it, those are very difficult conversations. Of course. And I think, in, I, I, if anything, I highly advocate having those conversations more in the open space. But I think they're not because they're so morally difficult politically, ethically to have. I think each of these actors has their different interests and incentives uh, in the process. And the, the one that I push for is that we should be spending more time looking at the consequences of 
these actions. And we should be putting more efforts thinking about how we direct resources to where they can actually make a difference and not to where they can simply make us feel good that we've tried right. because the situation is hard. So it's morally criminal if you're actually, if, if you're abandoning your responsibility in terms of efficacy at the end of the day. If, I, so morally, these are my words. I, I, use, I use more inflammatory rhetoric. Yes, I, I don't but, know uh, if I would say morally <laughs> criminal, but I mean, it is my perspective that it is unethical. If you are an advocate that is attempting, endeavoring to really help protect human rights and reduce human suffering, to put resources into situations where we have every indication that it is unlikely to really do the job, right. where you are not helping other people that could have been helped instead, very complicated choices. Sure. Right? So, so let me be super clear. I want to move on to something else, but just let me be super clear with my, my perspective and, and get your reaction. And I, I suspect that there's too much agreement to to talk much further about this, but um, I, I certainly recognize that there is a, an enormous divergence of opinion as to what these metrics should be, how one should move forwards, uh, what the right course of action should be, and I don't in any way claim to, to have any expertise whatsoever or any sense of best judgment as to make any recommendations. That being said, I have an incredibly strong view that there is no justification for not having such a, 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 a strong, sorry, that there is no justification for having an open, transparent dialogue that is discussing um, what those issues might be and, and framing the debate. I, I uh, Put another way, I think there's absolutely no justification for burying this and saying, oh yes, well, we all know that. We all know that in order to have effective um, measures so that we can on the ground reduce human rights abuses, we have to do all this sort of stuff in the field, but we're not going to talk about it because that offends the sensibilities of some idealistic moral framework that we have. So we're just going to pretend that the world is this way as opposed to that way and not even acknowledge it publicly. Anyway, so I, I don't want to beat this to death, but I, I think those are two different issues. One is, one is the willingness to be open about these very issues uh, as you are doing and uh, as you have done through this particular book and, and in your work, and the other is, well, what exactly to do? And I, I think there's a real distinction there. I agree. I mean, I think the time has come where this conversation is the timely one to have. And I understand why it hasn't happened globally and openly up until now. But now we, we begin to have the metrics where we can start to actually make assessment about how to evaluate the implications and the effectiveness of policy. It would have been very difficult to have this conversation 50 years ago because we had no way to really with any degree of confidence, evaluate what is the likelihood that this policy versus that policy is going to work? How are we going to right, evaluate right. Um, the effectiveness of these policies? We simply didn't have the tools. But the data are there now. The Let me not overstate the case. The data are being developed. Right. There are data to speak to these questions with 100% confidence? No. Sure. That will never happen. But the data, the infrastructure, the people, the human resources, uh, and the sensibility are all now in place where we can actually start leveraging what the social sciences and the sciences have to offer on these questions in ways that I really don't believe could have happened 30 years ago. And that means we can bring the social sciences to bear on making some of these decisions in ways that prior we couldn't do. And it may very well be the case that different institutions have different roles. Maybe it's the best possible thing for non-governmental organizations, for example, to always focus on the worst cases, whether it's going to fundamentally revolutionize right, the domestic politics of those countries or not. Maybe that's their job. It's a very different question to ask what the role is of governments and institutions like the United Nations 
uh, in terms of how they want to allocate their, their resources. So it's possible there'll be a division of labor in, mm. in the answers to these questions. Sure. But I think we can have that conversation now in a way we couldn't have before. And so the question is, can we incite it to happen in the open public space? Okay. So I want to get to your concrete recommendations. But to get there, I want to work through uh, the structure of your book, because I think it's, it's, it's very informative and very helpful to do so. Um, and in so doing, I think I'm going to push back a little bit with this idea that the time is right now, because uh, the data are there to, to at least start developing these, these models. Um, so let me, let me quit telling you what I'm going to do and try to, try to enunciate something. So you, you begin by asking a question, which again, in my mind, seems obvious, but I was kicking myself that I hadn't really thought about it, which is, well, why do these abuses happen in the first place? So we all know that there are human rights abuses to all sorts of horrifying degrees. Um, and let's actually step back and say, well, what's causing those? Why, why are people doing this? And for most of us, myself very much included, I certainly don't put myself on a higher plane than anyone else, there's a tendency to demonize people, to just say that they are the other, to say they're crazy, to, to use examples of these are just complete lunatic people who could never be anything like us, um, are horrible monsters. And so major human rights abuses are committed by these horrible monsters. That's, that's the way I think most people uh, unreflect, unreflectingly look at the situation. But then if you think about it a little bit, you realize that, of course, that's not actually what's going on. Of course, if one looks at the litany of documentation from all sorts of human rights abuses that have happened, certainly in the 20th century or, or beyond, there's been a lot of study of this and a, and a lot that's out there in not only the psychological literature, but just, just in, the, in, the, in the public consciousness. How did the, the Third Reich actually, ha how did the Nazi policies actually get implemented? Well, it wasn't just one crazy guy with a gun. It wasn't just, a, clearly, there was a lot that was actually happening. There was the Stanford Prison Experiment by Philip Zimbardo that, 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 that did, a, who did rather, a, a, a concrete psychological experiment that showed that uh, arbitrary distinctions into, into prisoners uh, and guards between whatever it was, undergraduates, uh, all of a sudden solidified into this hellish world of, of, of one group of people arbitrarily chosen baiting the other. So there's, there's a litany of anecdotal and rigorous experimental scientific evidence to point to the fact that, no, 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 human beings on a, on a, on a normal basis, or at least many human beings, can develop or can be susceptible to these monstrous tendencies. So again, I'm thinking, why did it take so long for people to be looking at it this way? And there's no data there. So I, I, it's ridiculous for me to be arguing with you about your book and what it is that you're saying. But I'm, I, I'm puzzled by this because I think, you know, the, 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 the prison experiment was in the 70s, right? And people knew yes. about these things and they asked, you know, how did, how did all these horrible genocides actually happen in the 20th century? And I think most people who thought about it realized it wasn't just this madman hypothesis, that that's part of human nature, unfortunately, that we have to deal with. And we have to deal with it so as to hope that it won't happen again. I think this is the fundamental question. This is the essence um, of, of where we have to start with trying to understand what effective remedies look like. And it becomes very easy to explain very quickly why so much of what we're doing 
isn't actually having the impact we're hoping that it would have, and it's because the tools that we've created for advocacy are out of sync with the actual causes of the behavior that's, that are operating on the ground in the first place. So when I teach Human Rights 101 to my policy students, we start on day one by asking not how do laws work or what can NGOs do, but why do people engage in this behavior in the first place, because it's an unbelievably puzzling. Nobody wants to be the victim of a human rights violation. There's nobody sure. who wants to be a victim. And yet there are, by any particular count, hundreds, thousands, millions of people who are participating in the victimization of others. And that's unbelievably complicated to, to sure. sort of work. And, and most people don't want to be the perpetrators either. I mean, they don't, they don't want to be the victims, but they're not going to say, oh, yes, I'm the sort of person that right. would do that. That's right. But it's absolutely clear that the statement that you've made is very well founded by the psychological and also the criminological literatures, which is that people commit these crimes because it's in their interest to do so. There are benefits to violating human rights. You might get a sense of superiority, you might acquire assets, you might get intelligence, right? There's a long laundry list of why people engage in these things. And the costs, they're oftentimes quite unclear, right? There's no centralized enforcement mechanism that will always catch or will always punish you. If you think about the punishments, having Amnesty International write a bad report about you, it doesn't help, but it doesn't necessarily always hurt. There's a lot of uncertainty about what the risks are, and there are big benefits. And so this is the crucially important point that most of what operates the incentive structure for people who are engaging in these types of behavior is an interest-based story, right? It's in your interest to do so, in the interest of the culture in which you're embedded, or the institutions in which you're embedded. And so it becomes very important to start right there. And what that means is that the policy process, whether that be law, whether that be advocacy, whether that be military intervention, has to do something to address that calculus. I either have to convince you that the benefits of what you're doing aren't really that beneficial to you, or that the costs just aren't going to be worth the benefits at the end of the day. And I have to change one or both of those things. And if I don't do that, I'm not going to have an impact on, on your behavior. When you think about that, I mean, it's a very specific sort of political implication about the way we're thinking about changing human rights. So we do know, for instance, that there are certain types of contexts and certain types of situations where people are going to be much more likely to engage in these types of behaviors. And these are the big, tough situations that are really hard to change. They're really hard to change by NGOs. They're really hard to change by laws. They're hard to change by anything. Wars, right? Assad's a bad guy. There's no question about that. But he's also embedded in the middle of a civil war in Syria. And it's in his interests to operate uh, with the brutality that he's doing, as it's in the interest of the opposition, until they fight it out to see who will remain in power. Right? Different structures of government, when you face political dissent. Now we have terrorism, right? poverty inequality, dehumanization, there's cultures that support these types of behavior that provide interests, all of which are incredibly difficult to change and will never be touched by creating more treaties uh, and are very difficult for NGOs and governments to actually change. It's really hard to end war. Mm -hmm. And you're not going to get protections for human rights until you end war because security has to come first. Sure. So that already is a very difficult reality in terms of grappling with well, how do we change incentive structures, particularly when we're in extreme circumstances, to make people believe the benefits aren't quite so big and the costs are a lot bigger than, than you think. There's another, I think, important part of this conversation which comes from the sort of psychology of it all, which is very much about 
what happens inside people's heads when they engage in these types of behavior. And that's not something that I've ever heard discussed yeah, in, the, in, the, in the social science uh, outside of the psychological context of research. But I think it's really important, and it also has very important policy implications for how we're going to operate with our advocacy programs. And that's because we're really good survivors, human beings, right? We're really good at rationalizing what we do. And so if it's true, as we believe it is, that sort of you, you take a normal, ordinary person and you put them in one of these difficult contexts, and that person engages, has incentives now to engage in this bad behavior, that person also has sort of psychological incentives to rationalize what they're doing and to explain it away so that they're not the bad person, but it's the fault of their commander who ordered them to do it. Uh, it's the fault of the boss. Maybe what they've done isn't quite so bad. Maybe the harm wasn't so, um, so difficult. It was extraordinary circumstances. We were at war. I had no choice. I had to do it. And what we find is just so interesting is that people will go further than to just say, it's not my fault. I had to do it. They'll even go to the extent where they can justify morally and sometimes legally the engagement in the behavior. So if you look at, for example, some of the individuals who were involved in the scandal in Abu Ghraib, mm -hmm. in the Iraqi prison, you will find explanations of not only it wasn't my fault, he told me to do it, war is war, but the moral justification of what they were going to do to me was so much worse, right. and I'm saving lives right. by doing this, that I am legally and morally justified in engaging in these behaviors. And they believe it. Right? So what that suggests at the end of the day about policy prescriptions is that, okay, wow, there's some really difficult things that are propelling these incentives, war and poverty, things that aren't easy to solve with any particular policy. And when people start engaging in these things, normal, ordinary, average people, they rationalize to themselves why it's okay to be doing so and why it could be possibly even a good thing to be doing so. And that means that any policy prescriptions that are there to shame them, that are there to say, hey, what you're doing is wrong or illegal or morally bad, if they've come to the conclusion through that rationalization process that it's not morally bad, it's not illegal, and they're justified, they're going to ignore it. Sure. Unless those policies have some, either are seen as legitimate for some reason by the, the perpetrator, or they're, they're backed up by consequences right. that, are, that are feasible and credible. And without either of those two things, you're going to have very limited impact. So I think the psychology and the sort of context behind why people engage in these behaviors is crucially important. And, and the reality is, from my perspective, is that we don't start the conversation that way in the advocacy community. We, we don't talk about it that way. We start the conversation with the tools. We say, we're the NGOs. We shame. Who are we going to shame? We're the UN. We create resolutions. Who are we going to create a resolu resolution against? Right. We start with the tools. We don't start with the underlying incentive structures. And part of the difficulty here is that many of the tools that we're using just don't overlap with the incentive. Sure. Uh, it's an, it's an awfully, incentives. It's an awfully blunt instrument. I mean, even the idea of shaming. Shaming may be a great instrument in and of itself, but you have to know how to shame somebody. I that's mean, right. If they're not going to be ashamed by what you're doing, then that's not going to work for that's obvious right. reasons. That's right. Um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about um, just picking up on this. It's difficult. I'm not looking for percentages or anything, but the people who are, again, on the ground in the advocacy community, are they of the view that uh, do they have the view that I, I was describing earlier, that these people who are committing these human rights abuses, these are monsters? And they, uh, of course, at some level, they are monsters. I'm not <laughs> suggesting that they're, that they're not. But do they have this visceral understanding uh, that 
that lots and lots of history and lots and lots of psychological research has thrust upon us that, you know what, it's not quite that simple and that, and that we should understand the, you know, the banality of evil, as Hannah Arendt said. Mm -hmm. and so, I mean, th these are not radically new revolutionary no, ideas, right? I, do, they, do they have that? Do they have a sense like, like uh, do they demonize people uh, who, are, who are doing this, or do they have a sense of that slippery slope of the crooked timber of humanity? Do they, do they look, have Look, I that? mean, it's their job to shame, but I have to say from my experience, these are really smart, savvy people, sure. right? Uh, and, and they know how hard the game is, uh, and many of them are, have been on the ground with these individuals of, over Of time. course, of course. So I, I think they have a pretty clear sense, you know? It's, it's, it's everybody else who doesn't necessarily think about that, right? It's my okay. students who sit down when we talk about in, in this environment, what do you do? How do you think through problems who almost all start with the premise of, well, he's a crazy guy, so we just put him in jail and we solve the problem, yeah. right? Uh, I think the advocates are very savvy when it, comes, when it comes to this. Now, with regard to the psychological part of it, though, that's not, again, as I've said, a conversation that I've heard happen very frequently about, well, Sure, maybe they're normal, ordinary people, but what do we do about the fact that they've truly rationalized inside their brains right. Right, their behavior in ways that might make our shaming mechanisms less effective right. than we think they are? Right. That's not a conversation that I've, I've heard um, in the hallways. Um, right. But these folks are very, are very savvy about about exactly why there are incentive structures for people sure. to engage in these behaviors. They know that. Sure. And I didn't mean to imply that they're, they're not either uh, that they are neither savvy nor dedicated. I, I, I'm assuming. I'm assuming they are both, and I am assuming uh, there are also people who have seen unspeakable horrors, the likes of which I will never see, hopefully. Uh, and it's very, very difficult, I'm sure, when you've had to grapple with these unspeakable horrors to to take not so much a broader view, but to take a broader view of the human condition. Uh, I yeah. would. I'm sure that were I in that situation, I would be full bore demonizing people left, right, center, yeah. and sideways. Um, but it's a question of what's going to work at the end of the day, uh, as, as, as of course we realize. But, so then, from that uh, fundamental question of why are these things happening, and which naturally leads us to what sort of instruments and tools we might have to be able to, mm -hmm. to be more efficacious to stop that from happening, or, or at least uh, punish people who are doing so. You move on to discuss the, the structures that are in place today, and again, uh, very carefully and very respectfully, you talk about the great accomplishments that have been made mm -hmm. with international human rights. Uh, not only the treaties and the covenants, but the actual structures and all the rest of this. Uh, you're clearly very aware of this and very respectful of the huge advances that have been made in the past 60 plus years or, or, or what have you. Um, at the same time, there are, there are a few things reading your book that uh, I wasn't really uh, sure what, what your views were on, so I want to ask you. Okay. <laughs> so one was the International Criminal Court. Mm -hmm. So I have this, uh, this problem that I think it's, uh, I, I, you know, I have all these strong views, and not always based upon a whole lot, but so uh, I think it's appalling that the United States is not a signatory to the, to the International Criminal Court, and I think this Particularly is that we were central in the creation of the court itself. <laughs> central in the creation of the court, but, but also this is something which should, you know, which naturally resonates very strongly with the Enlightenment values and the entire reason, or one of the main reasons, why the United States was created to begin with, or at least later attributed to, to it. So if the United States is really going to be a shining beacon of, of the rights, the universal rights of man, um, and, 
and the values that it allegedly holds dear, gosh, it should be involved in this. You don't say anything like that when you're, at least in this particular book, um, you talk about how the international criminal, you talk about the structure of the international criminal court and how it's a little bit outside the system and is the court of sort of last resort sometimes and is used here and there and, and you say nice things about it, but I'd like to hear a little bit more about uh, how we can move forwards with that specifically and what the United States' role should be. I think it's a really interesting question and it, it shows both the strengths and the weaknesses of the system itself. So I'm a very strong supporter of the court. It's incredibly important that we move from not just having accountability of governments, who will always walk away from accountability when it's in their interest, but accountability of actual individual criminals and perpetrators, who once we put them in jail can't walk away. So the court is a good idea. Let me say a couple things about it. It's very clear why the United States does not uh, ratify the Rome uh, statute, does not sign on to the court and give it jurisdiction, and that's because we're afraid that we are going to have our people who have committed atrocities uh, in other countries at times of war brought before this court. And there are a variety of countries who have ma made the case openly that they will attempt to do this. And so the United States has gone off and asked other countries to sign a document that basically says, I promise I will not surrender your nationals who have committed crimes on my soil, and there are a handful, there are several dozens of countries who have signed this, this document, but not everybody. And so that means it leaves us open to criminal prosecution of our boots on the ground in other countries in an international context. Which is, which is as, as I understand it, one of the entire purposes of the court to begin with. It is, but the United States government is not going to allow it to happen to our own nationals because I we, we created the court to stop the bad guys. Of course, we don't consider ourselves to be the bad guys. It's a very complex situation. I believe the United States should ratify um, the, the court, but that's the, the, the treaty. But that's the reason that they're, that they're not doing it. But surely you realize, uh, obviously you realize, but, but surely the people of the United States who pay attention to these things realize that that undermines the entire process because if every country did that, you wouldn't have an international criminal court. It certainly does. I don't think that the average person in this country knows what the international criminal court is, nor is this an issue that is important before the state of the economy. Are we going to intervene uh, in Iraq? Uh, are we pulling out of Afghanistan, et cetera? Those are the, the sort of the core issues that, that reign supreme. But we agree. We agree on, on this point. Now, let me say something else about the court, though, which is that the court's new. It's only been in operation for about 10 years or so. And so we don't really have the capacity to look at a big chain of history over time to say whether or not the court's actually working to do what it's supposed to do. It's supposed to deter. And the way you get deterrence is by you bring people to justice. You do something bad, I catch you, I punish you, you go to jail, and therefore your neighbor chooses not to opt into the same behavior because he knows that the costs are big, right? So to return to the sort of motivation conversation we're having, mm -hmm. the court's just going to raise the cost, raise the probability that you're going to get caught. Okay, now let's look at what the empirical reality is. And we can't do this with statistics because there aren't enough of them. But there are a handful of cases that have ever been brought before the court. They are all in Africa. They're all in countries that are at war. This has delegitimized the court in the eyes of many countries, um, particularly the entire continent of Africa. When the court issued arrest warrants, for example, for um, the president of Sudan, which was in 2008-2009, the entire continent of Africa committed to ignore those arrest warrants due to the illegitimacy of the court for having targeted only African states. Now, these states are doing very bad things, but they're 
are claims of bias inherent um, in that that are very hard to, to avoid. More than that, with the exception of a few people who have come before the court, everybody else who's been indicted is either dead or um, uh, out, uh, um, what is the word I'm searching for? Out of power, uh, out, out, out of power uh, dead or uh, at large. So we ha millions and millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars have been put together to create this infrastructure where we have basically one prosecution that's led to one guy in jail and very little else um, to show for it. Now, my particular view, and so this is why you see people very divided about whether this is a good thing or a bad thing, whether the court is actually effective or not, and whether the court, by issuing arrest warrants in countries quite divided at times of war, is, are actually exacerbating political violence. Mm -hmm. right? Will the president of Sudan ever relinquish power knowing that there's an arrest warrant on his head and that he will go to the Hague be prosecuted and then spend the rest of his life in jail. No, he's going to fight it out probably now to the death. Two different perspectives on whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. My, my own particular view on the court is that it's an incredibly important institution that we have, but that the prosecutor, and particularly the previous prosecutor, has chosen, again, the wrong metric on which to utilize the court. He's gone for the big, high-profile cases mm -hmm heads of state who are never going to step down from power, whereas there are hundreds, if not, th there are thousands of cases that the prosecutor could choose from in locations where the court could actually probably work, where the people who you're indicting are no longer in power, so they don't have the incentives to try and duke it out and create war to keep government, right? Where the people who are in power are willing to actually catch them and turn them in, right? and where the court could actually function. But that's not what the prosecutor has chosen to do. Right. So it'll be very interesting to see what the new prosecutor does. I hope she's going to be a, a fair bit more savvy with regards to this in terms of choosing cases where the court can actually do what it's supposed to do. Because you can't get deterrence without justice. And so far, we have no justice. And we've had 10 years, 10 years. And we've only focused in Africa. So I believe very strongly that the United States should, can, and eventually will join on to the court we were crucial in the evolution and the creation of the court. I think it's only a matter of time. But the court needs to modify its behavior to send a better signal in terms of not just will we prosecute US nationals, which maybe they will and maybe they should. But um, is, is it a fundamentally effective, right. fair institution, or is it biased and ineffective? And so far, I, I do believe the jury's out on that. Sure, but it seems to me that it would, and I guess this is my point, it would be great to see the United States full bore uh, participating in the development of the court in a positive direction, whatever that may be, you know far more better than I do. I am not for a moment saying that the actual uh, instantiation of the concept of the International Criminal Court is the optimal thing going on. I'm in no position to say so. I'm just saying that it's a wonderful idea in principle, and in order to make it better and to improve it, seems to me it's essential to have American leadership as part of global leadership to move forwards. And the only way they can do that is if they're actually a part of it. Yeah. Um, and so it's disappointing for me as, uh, as a citizen of the world uh, who, as it happens, is not American, who is hoping for uh, a larger American presence in order to move in a more positive direction. 
do not have America in such a structural place where it can actually affect such change. Yeah. I, I could not agree more. It's one of the ironies of this system that you have countries like the United States who do not participate in this court, have not signed on to some of the core, most fundamental human rights treaties that we participated in creating uh, that every other country in the face of the planet has signed on to, but yet we don't, and we have very specific reasons for why that's the case. And then alternatively, you look around and you find Kazakhstan and Saudi Arabia and other countries uh, around the world who are openly repressive, who participate vastly in these systems, some of whom sit in positions of authority on the Human Rights Council. The United States has rejoined the Human Rights Council, so that's that decision happened under Obama, and that was a very good decision for precisely the reason you suggested, is you can't shape an institution if you shut the doors uh, to the institution. So I do think we're going to see more participation by the United States in these institutions. But it's a pretty fundamental irony that there are states that ostensibly protect certain human rights quite well domestically that do not participate in the, these international parts of the system, others that are highly repressive domestically, and that yet are making commitments to the international part of the system, which are co completely insincere. insincere. So let's get to some of the very practical, uh, concrete suggestions that you make um, in making human rights a reality insofar as your thoughts on uh, steward states, your thoughts on the, the role of localization and so forth, your, your, um, this notion of triage and, and what one has to do in terms of prioritizing, which, which go against, um, we talked about this a little bit before and hopefully we'll talk about it a little bit again, this, this, this tension between this universality and globalized approach as opposed to pragmatic on the ground practicalities which often mean that you have to favor one course of action over another. Um, give us a bit of a, a, of a summary of a precis of, of your, uh, of some recommendations that you have. So I think we need to think about this system actually as a system, which is to say there are groups of non-governmental organizations and actors out there that are crucial for the provision of information and so on and so forth. And I don't talk a lot about them because so much has been written about them. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think they're savvy and have a pretty good sense of what they need to do. Then there's the question of what do we do with this international legal system that we've built over 70 years and it's grown and grown and grown and we've created more and more and more treaties and more and more procedures and more norms and more advocates and more institutions. And the goal in doing this was to reduce repression. That's the ultimate goal sure. in, in doing this. And then when you look around the world, we see atrocity and human rights repression everywhere. Now, it's actually a debate uh, in, the, in the community as to whether things are getting a little bit better over time or a little bit worse over time or just kind of staying stagnant. But it's not a debate that we have massive human rights problems that are happening despite the fact that we have built this extraordinary apparatus of institutions. And so the question is, what do you do about that? Do you, how, how, can you fix this system? Is there something we can do to, to make the system better? We're certainly not going to get rid of the system. Look at all of the effort that's sure. been put into place. The system's not going anywhere. Sure. And, so, and there have been some great victories. Absolutely. Say. There have been great victories along the way. So that's the, 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 the essence of what do we do? And what the system is doing, what the, how the system is answering this question is by growing itself. Right? And that's one possibility. So we just we have more treaties. Right now, this month, they have proposed that there's going to be a new treaty regulating, binding treaty regulating businesses with regards to human rights. So those discussions will start. Maybe that's a good idea. Maybe that's not a good idea. More treaties. We get more participation into the system. 
well, is that going to work? Is that the solution that we want to go down? And the answer to that is very complicated because that's a good solution to the extent that if you're the bad guy perpetrating abuses and I create one more treaty or one more procedure, that's somehow going to make you think differently about these costs and benefits, right? These incentive structures that we keep talking about that are, that are motivating you to do what you're doing. And so to answer that question, we really have to return back to what the research is telling us about the impact of, of the, the efficacy of these institutions. And in short, this is what we know, which is that these institutions seem to do a pretty good job in some places. Yeah. But it's primarily in those places where the human rights abuse situations are the least offensive, where the abuses are sort of the least worst, uh, if you will. They can work quite well by helping NGOs to do their jobs, by mobilizing constituencies, by mobilizing local organizations. They can help set domestic agendas. They can help litigation in courts, whether that be international criminal or local or some regional courts. So they have lots of roles to play. But that slice of countries, in order for those laws to be up, uptaken, you need to have places that are relatively stable. They need to have local courts. Those courts need to be independent. There needs to be control over the military. There needs to be free press. There needs sure. to be activation of civil society, right? All these checks and balances. So what I'm saying is that's not happening in Saudi Arabia and North Korea and Iran, right? Those are not the places where these legal institutions are likely to have this uptake. Yeah. The places are in the more stable, sort of democratic countries. And what the research suggests at this point in time, and I think there's some debate uh, still on this, is that even in the most highly democratic places, these laws aren't going to have a tremendous amount of effect because most highly democratic uh, countries already have domestic legislation in place that are taking care of civil liberties, uh, political freedoms, et cetera. And so the laws are just redundant. Right. They're not going to they apply in the advanced right. places, and they're not going to apply in the other places. Exactly. They're going to apply in this sliver of countries that the sort of newly democratizing. They used to have dictators in power, and now there's some other guys in power. They're not dictators. They've got to deal with their past, and everybody kind of wants things to move forward. But institutionally, it's a process. So that's a good thing. Um, it's a good thing that we can find clear evidence that these institutions matter. But the problem is, what about everybody else? It's not helping in the d democratic areas. And it, we don't seem to find evidence that it's helping in any of these other areas where you have problems. Civil society isn't free. The press isn't free, et, et cetera. Um, and there's a risk, because growing these institutions it's not just that I'm telling you it's not going to help on either end of the highly democratic or the good chunk of the world that's quite repressive. It's unlikely to have much impact there. But there's actually a real risk that it could harm the institution, uh, the, the system itself. Because the more you create a system of laws and the more noncompliance, the more rule breakers there are, the less legitimate those laws become. Right? Sure. And the less likely others are to follow it. So if you just think about it in terms of you know, traffic laws, for example, we've got very strict laws about what the speed limits are. But if everybody broke the rules and nobody ever enforced the rules, we process. would all speed, yeah. right? And, and because the rules would have no legitimacy whatsoever. It's very similar uh, in this context, which is a great risk to growing a system with more laws, more repressive states who just do more rule violating. Because the clear signal then gets sent, hey, this isn't a serious system, right? There's, Feel free to join on. Feel free to break the rules. There'll be very little consequence for you if that happens. 
So there's a, a, a danger to the growing of it. Sure. So which which undermines, I mean, which, which arguably at some level makes it even even worse than going forward. This constant, uh, this could be an undermining of the entire. I, I believe entire we're principles. at the stage where that is the case. So I believe we are at the stage of norm saturation. And, and what I mean by that is we've got all the rules that we need in the books. The UN, Europe, Africa, the regional system in the Americas, they, we have all of the laws and all of the rules. We, we know, know what, we what the do. rules are. Right. We know what the rules are. There's no ambiguity about this. The problem is not that we need more rules and more procedures. The problem is that those rules are not changing the incentive structures that are incentivizing why people are engaging in this behavior. So it's my deep concern that the great success of the system is going to start to become undermined if we continue to grow the system into more and more procedures and more and more rules. And so I personally advocate at this time that we, we stop the sort of growth dynamics and take a step back and think about what types of reforms can actually occur inside this system to give it more legitimacy and to create more compliance so that there's more rule following. Because That's without fine. those two things, the system is undermined. All right, so talk about those. Reform is a terribly boring topic uh, to talk about, so I'll or just say a few brief words oh, about oh, it. Oh, oh, hold on, it's, I'll, I'll, be, I'll be the judge of it. Yeah, okay. So, <laughs> so, I mean, it, th this is the crux of the matter, right? I mean, if I'm sitting, if I'm, I take up a book like this, or if I'm just sitting on, the, on my couch at home, and I turn on the television, and I see there are these horrible human rights abuses, and I think, oh yeah, there's the usual stuff, right? People are gonna, they're gonna say the usual things, there's gonna be this knee-jerk, uh, response. People are going to quote some United Nations declaration that, of course, is, is a motherhood and apple pie thing that I subscribe to. Politicians are going to grandstand. It's going to be in the media for a while, and, and then maybe people will have a discussion about it somewhere, and then nothing's going to happen. And then three years from now, there's going to be another one, and there's going to be right. another one. So It's a very good description of the process. So eventually. I'm frustrated, yeah. right? And I'm sure I, I, I'm not the slightest bit alone. I think any reasonable person looks around. These are horrible, horrible yeah. things that are going on in the world. And you, you want to have real impact. You want to have impact not just in terms of making the world better and diminishing atrocities. You want to talk, I mean, this has tie-ins with aid. It has tie-ins with all sorts of foreign policy. It has tie-ins to, to even my security because, of course, I'm worried about these, these, uh, these crazy regimes where people are going to do, uh, not only are they going to commit atrocities to their own people, they might commit atrocities to, to you and me. So yeah. this, ain't, this ain't boring. These I, are mean, big, I, I want, I want so to these, are, these are big picture questions. I guess when I said boring, I meant the bureaucratic details are sometimes a bit boring. But there are two levels on which this conversation, I think, needs to occur. And one is what can happen inside the system that we've built to try and make it better. Uh, and that's largely a bureaucratic discussion sure. about what can be tweaked. And the other is what are some of the other alternatives outside the system right, that can help strengthen right. um, this system. So I'll just speak real briefly to the first, which is that with regards to reforms inside the system, there is an army of very smart lawyers who are working and have been working on this question for decades and there are lots and lots of ideas and I'll say Hold on, very smart lawyers so you lost me there yes very smart lawyers even the lawyers even the lawyers very smart lawyers who are working on this um, but there are real complications which is to say that even if the reforms that are being discussed were implemented it wouldn't change the fact that neither the democracies nor all of the other countries that are outside of this little slice of democratizing countries are, do not have an interest in participating or abiding by these treaties uh, or, or will this not. This is the whole incentivizing uh, thing. That, uh, right. It's not going to change that process whatsoever. So there's right. no reform that's fundamentally going to change that underlying problem. That said, there are lots of little bureaucratic reforms that could make the process work a little better in the places where it already works. Sure. 
even those are unlikely to do much more than tinker at the margins and are apparently politically infeasible. So small things like changing the bureaucratic process to just make it easier, for example, for these democratic middling states to file all the reports that they have to file, for example. Huge arguments and huge debates about these reforms that are going nowhere. So the few reforms that people have really coalesced around as potential, potentially effective are impossible to pass politically. And that is in no small part because you have a very large number of states that are insincere participants in this system. The more of these you let into the system, the more they are going to stop any reforms intended to make the system more effective. So in short, well, there's lots to do at the margins and armies of people working on it and I think hope for minutia that could occur here and there. That, and, I, and I mean that in an important way. I think it's really important. The hope for the system is not in tinkering at the margins. The hope for the system uh, is going to have to be external actors that are helping to, to implement the, the norms. So I'm quite pessimistic, actually, about what can really be done inside the UN to make it that much more effective. So the other part of the conversation then is, well, what else can you do? Right. And so one of the things I wanted to advocate for in this book is that Many of us in the advocacy community have been thinking about and writing about advocates. So we know a lot about NGOs. We know a lot about what they can do. We know, and they know a lot about what they can do. We spend a lot less time talking about the more difficult question, I think, which is, well, what about states, right? Because they're at the center of the problems. They're oftentimes the perpetrators of this abuse, but they also have the potential to play a much greater role than they currently are in, in solutions to human rights problems. And we haven't much in the research community talked in detail about what role for states. We've talked about the NGOs and we've talked about the laws. So the reality is that we have states running around out there that are, for a variety of different reasons, engaging in the promotion of human rights. And they're doing it unilaterally. They're doing it in various forms of collectives. They're using sanctions and military intervention. They're using aid and trade, diplomacy, a whole battery of tools. And so we want to take a step back and ask the same question as we ask about the human rights institutions at the UN and in the regional systems. Well, does any of this stuff work? Or you know, is this the right strategy? Right. And so there's been a lot less, frankly, research in this area. And one of the things I'm suggesting is we need to start having those conversations and doing more research. But the research seems to suggest that, like laws, it's a pretty complex picture. And the answer is, yeah, sometimes. Sometimes this stuff works. You've got the European Union, the United States, and its various allies running around utilizing these tools sometimes to good effect. And they're spending billions and billions of dollars on it collectively. So there's a lot of resources, a lot of resources that are being put through this avenue, more so than are going in through the United Nations systems, by the way. So if you want to look at where the money and the power are, we've got to be looking to the states. The problem is that it doesn't always work, uh, and there are certainly cases of backfiring where policies have had the exact sure. opposite intended um, consequence. You see this with sanctions in Cuba. You see this with efforts to change female genital cutting, uh, which completely backfired. The victims themselves uh, ref refused to acknowledge uh, or accept them the status of victimhood. Right? It was only through a re-educational campaign done by NGOs where you see a change uh, that's begun to happen on the ground. So there's a lot of ways that these big, strong, powerful states who are mucking around in human rights around the globe are screwing things up. 
but there's tremendous potential to do better because that's where the money is and because power can play a very important role in the promotion of human rights. So that's a very controversial statement that I've um, just made because, well, for, for many people don't want to think about sort of a joint role for, for law and power, right? The human rights system is universal, it's global, and it's supposed to be neutral. It's not supposed to be inherently, yes. Finish, finish. It's, not, it's not supposed to be inherently a political process. It's just that that happens to be wrong because it is inherently a political process. Exactly, so there, there so, are two things. So I, I'm gonna interject as the man on the street, okay. my man on the street view, okay? So first of all, um, you don't have to be a, a subscriber of one political school or another. You just have to be awake to realize that there's real power that's vested in certain places in 2014 around the world. And it ain't the United Nations. Okay? So, I, I mean, that's not to say the United Nations can't do anything, but if you want to look at, and for me as a non-expert, it's intuitively obvious that a country like the, the United States or, or a group of countries like the European Union or individual countries within the European Union, they, they have... They have soft power, they have hard power, they have all sorts of power in, in a way that the United Nations doesn't. So that's just a fact that, that, that's on the ground. The other fact that's on the ground is that it's all very well to talk about universality and the fact that, no, 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 we really should treat all uh, countries the same way. But it's also a fact that I think almost everybody who's sane on planet Earth today realizes that these countries aren't the same, that from a moral perspective, whatever wrongs they may have done, and, and not to say that they're... Uh, that they have this unimpeachable virtue or anything like that, but the United States is not North Korea, right? I, I mean, and, and, and neither is the United Kingdom or neither is Sweden. And if you ask people who they want to be involved in the world for the promotion of, the, of, of things like the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, well, you sure want those countries, then Zimbabwe or Somalia or, I, I mean, that's just, that's just a well, fact, right? I mean, any reasonable person knows this. I, don't, I just disagree because if you ask people in the United States, they're going to give you that answer, possibly. If you ask people in China, they're going to have a very different perspective on whether or not the United States should be lecturing the Chinese on... No, but that's on, not what I'm saying. I'm not saying, I'm not saying they should right. be lecturing the Chinese. I'm, and I'm not saying that, the, like I say, I'm not saying that one is virtuous and the other is evil. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying there's a... I think most people in China would recognize that there's a difference between the values that are associated with the state of the United States as opposed to the values that are associated with the state of Somalia. Am I, am I, am I wrong? Or, or there is no state of Somalia. There's yes, currently no state of Somalia, uh, North Korea. I, I think, I mean, I, I don't want to go into detail on the Chinese perspective. That's not my area of expertise. But you will find the Chinese and the Americans warring over concepts and definitions of human rights. Okay, but that's not what I'm saying. Let me put it another way, okay? Where do people want to go in the world? I mean, if you're a refugee, where do you want to go? You want to go to a place like Sweden, right? right. You want to go to a place like Norway. You want to go to a place like the United Kingdom. And you want to go to a place like the United States. You don't want to go to North Korea. You, you, don't, you don't want to go to Kazakhstan. If you're a victim. You don't, you don't want to go to Somalia. That's right. If you're a victim, but the victims are not the ones who are, are running the system. And that, in some sense, is the problem, uh, right? So I, I appreciate that. I, all I'm saying is that this idea that there is this universality yes. that's out there, it's, it's just wrong. I mean, it's just empirically wrong. We yes. know that it's not. That it's a nice ideal, maybe in some mythical la-la land, but, but it, ain't, it, it ain't reality. And anybody who turns on their news knows that. Yes. And what we're talking about are real people suffering real abuses, and, and we, we have to start from what's actually going on. I, I couldn't agree more. So, but the, the, the controversy around law and power is something is, is somewhat different, which is that 
if what we've said is we have a set of universal norms embedded inside a set of highly politicized, somewhat dysfunctional institutions that have some impact here but not impact there and that we don't think we're going to be able to readily reform to really do the job, then the question is, well, where do we turn? And right. from the perspective of the government of Saudi Arabia sitting in the Human Rights Council, the answer is not to the United States and to Europe to wield more power around the globe. Right? From the perspective of the Chinese, that right. is not the answer. But the reality is that that is what those countries are doing anyway. And so you have a grave tension between the states that are out there that are genuinely, I, I do believe not all actions are always motivated through genuine altruism states operate in their self-interest so that we are promoting human rights these countries it is in our self-interest to do in our national interest to do so but these countries are not seen necessarily as the legitimate purveyors of rightness uh, and norms in every other part of the world and it's not just by the governments but also sometimes by the victims that are in these countries and that makes my statement, I suppose, that, that's what I'm saying. This is where the controversial part of the statement sure. comes from, where from the perspective of the system, no, everyone's supposed to be at the table. No one's supposed to get special privilege to go unilaterally and start tossing around sanctions. All of that has to happen through discussion and consensus and decision making inside the system where everybody votes right in the same direction. And everyone says, OK, Libya, bad, right? North Korea, bad. Including Libya. Including Libya and North Korea. <laughs> Oftentimes, yes, that was the case. Rwanda uh, at the time of the genocide, yes. So the system is inherently flawed for that reason, right? So that puts us in the position that whether we like it or not, we have a variety of more than a handful of states that have the national interest to attempt to promote human rights in various different countries that ha have billions and billions of dollars in resources and that are frankly not doing a very good job at it. And so this realization to me suggests, okay, if we've, if we've done what we can do with the human rights system, it's achieved its biggest goal, it's defined the norms, now we have this other area where maybe we can do something to fix this other area. Maybe we can help these actors who are going to be out there meddling, whether we like it or not, in human rights, do the job better. And so then the question becomes, well, what would that look like? And what, what strategies might help? Right make that the case. And so, and here I have two suggestions. Uh, one I think is not especially controversial and the other uh, returns to our beginning conversation, um, which is a, a really a big a matter for debate. And the first is that where the problem is that people and governments sitting inside other countries don't view, don't want to be lectured by the United States, for example. No one wants the West to tell the rest what to do. Right? Sure. And so you have external foreign policies that don't have local stakeholders on the ground, they're not being vetted locally uh, internally, that may even be harming locals in the case of Cuban sanctions, for example, impoverishing an entire nation. This is not a good way to actually get locals on board to support uh, your foreign policy. And it backfired. The problem is you, you have to, for uptake of foreign policy, like uptake of law, either you have to be incredibly punitive and very convincing and very credible, and there are very few instances in all of history where this is the case, right? It's so hard to, to build up these resources and to be dedicated and to stick with it. Or you have to build up some legitimacy inside the, the country by the locals who are actually there, by the victims or certainly by their advocates. It certainly helps if the government participates, but often the government is the enemy, so that's not always the case. So if it's seen as the West lecturing the, we the, the, West lecturing the rest, 
the policies are going to fail unless you get uptick. So the way you get uptick is by changing the nature of the way we've engaged with much of foreign policy. USAID, when it's been out there giving money to different interest groups and so on and so forth, much of that is top down. Very little of that comes from the bottom up. They've also done a terrible job at impact evaluation, so it's unclear which, which has which worked and which it, hasn't. Yeah. But ne they know that now, and they're starting to change that. But there needs to be this process of engaging with local stakeholders. Now, that will look very different in different locations. That might mean locally-based NGOs. That might mean locally-based national human rights institutions, which are actually arms of the government, but are there to facilitate dialogues on human rights. That could mean religious organizations. That could mean any manner of locally-based stakeholders who care about human rights, who value uh, the foreign attempt to to help the victims, and are members of the community, right? There and who are members who are, who are members of the community, and so that sounds like a very trivial uh, or perhaps small suggestion, one that would just should be obvious, but that's not a lot of how our current foreign policy is actually run, um, and so I think th this is one avenue on which a pretty substantial a pretty minor change could have a pretty substantial difference in terms of uptake. Where the problem is that the West does, that, that nobody wants the West to lecture at the rest. There are other problems um, that, that this can't solve, but that's one of them. The other is this returning to how are we going to, as a community, talk about spending our resources, and we know the resources for all of this are scarce, and this returns us to my desire that we begin to engage in a public debate about what's the metric on which we choose where to intervene. And that one of the metrics, and perhaps the most important metric, become our sense that the policy is actually going to have some impact on the ground, that it's actually going to help the victims uh, and the people that it was intended to, to help. And that's not so obvious. I mean, if you think about, you imagine, what would happen in the situation of a train wreck and if you had medical professionals who were taking advice on who they were going to treat based on the family members who were standing nearby, right, or based on what strangers were telling them to do. Sure. These governments who are endeavoring to promote human rights through their foreign policies find themselves in somewhat analogous situations, right, which is that the media picks up certain events and there's lots of publicity around event A, but there's something else going on in B that no one is talking about whatsoever. And where does the government go? They go to event A. But right. that's not necessarily based on whether we can do anything about right. A. Right. And, if we and then five minutes later, they move on to some other event. That's right. That's right. So the concept of, of triage is really uh, sort of stock taking about what's the metric on which we're going to make these choices. Because it's my belief that we're really doing it, certainly as a community, in an entirely ad hoc way. And reactive and reactive, and everyone is off having their own set of, of sort of discourse on this, but there's no more global dialogue amongst, amongst the community about, well, what, what really should this, this, metric, this metric be? And so as you've seen now, clearly I'm a social scientist, so I'm constantly selling what social science can offer, but I firmly believe that this is an area where we have developed and are developing the tools and the skills and the resources and the data and the interests where we can help make these policy decisions or participate in these policy debates in a way that we've never really been able to do before or we've only been able to do anecdotally. In terms of what works, what is the metrics, how can we actually prioritize, what, can we, what have we seen in the past that actually works right. and so how can we iterate that most effectively in the future? That's right. And that is not how these conversations 
have historically or are often being driven right now. That is not what the aid-giving agencies are doing, not in Europe, not in the United States. Again, they're starting now. Everyone's interested in impact evaluation, but this is not the metric on which these decisions have been made for a very long time. Certainly not on military intervention. Everyone has had, the, you know, interest in the knowledge of the military and so forth that weigh in on these decisions. But there's a role for the social science community to play here that I think is really very important. And yeah. that's the sort of call for triage is this reality that we have to stop pretending that we don't have to make these difficult choices. Yeah. Because we're already making them, we're just doing it behind closed doors and we're doing it in ad hoc ways and we're doing it maybe not always on the right metric. So it can't harm the situation to have the conversation. It might not help, but I think it could. It isn't going to solve the reality that these are just really difficult problems to solve. Sure, but that. it's going to accept the reality. It's going to admit publicly the reality that decisions are being made, exactly as you say. And it, it returns us to the sort of notion of let's start the conversation not with the tool, not what law are we going to throw at it, but with the incentive structures that are creating these behaviors in the first place. Because it's impossible to do this type of analysis without starting with who are the actors, what do they want, why are they doing what they're doing. Right. And if we start that conversation there, there's a potential to improve the policies being articulated inside NGOs, uh, inside the legal system, and by states who frankly are wielding most of the power and have tremendous ability to do a better job. I want to get back to this idea of the, the potential asymmetry between states. I mean, the first thing to, I guess, emphasize is that this notion of, as you've said many times, this notion of looking at it uh, in, uh, from a states-centric or states-oriented perspective in itself is something that goes against the grain of a, a lot of this whole framework. But uh, that's just going on. That's happening. We, we live in a world of states. We don't live in a world of of, of one world government, which is making the decisions. We all know that. Um, and uh, there, is, there is this asymmetry, uh, I would posit, I would submit, uh, in terms of the fact that uh, some states are, are more responsible and more responsive to human, human rights abuses than others, without getting into any details. But what I'm thinking, or what I was thinking when I was reading your book is, well, Let's not go to states like the United States for now and China. And that, that's very problematic because they're these huge elephants, right? And they have all sorts of ambitions and they have all sorts of economic agendas and then they alienate all sorts of people. And Okay, fine. That's, that's too complicated. Let's, let's look at some of the, the smaller countries. Let's look at, at, at a country like Canada. Let's look at a country like Norway. Let's look at, at, at a country like Iceland or something. Let's, or let's look at an emerging country that, that could play a much larger role like South Africa or something like that. Um, what's wrong with, with having a public discussion where these countries have an acknowledged disproportionate amount of uh, impact and effect on the global landscape because they are seen to be countries that, are, uh, that do not have much skin in the game, as it were, in terms of their own imperial interests or economic mm -hmm. interests or, or whatever. Um, and many of them, certainly when I, when I look at a country like Norway, I think Norway should be, um, I think those guys are great. I think they're, I, I think the world needs more Norway, as they say. So why, <laughs> I mean, wh why isn't there more of a, I mean, could, could we imagine a world in which there's a public uh, acknowledgement, like, yeah, these guys should be somehow 
setting the agenda, or we should we should be looking more towards a country like that, um, because of their record of the the accomplishments that they've had, the fact that they are largely disinterested. Of course, they they have their own interests, but largely disinterested, relatively speaking, in terms of their own particular agenda. Can we make distinctions in in that way that would be beneficial? I think so. So if I might so maybe. I don't, Repeat the question to me. So I'm not sure I even had a question. You see, this is the whole idea of a dialogue format. My my, my sense so is my, my sense say, is the, when you say put the I mean look it to them. I don't know how. So I don't know how, but maybe so maybe in, just in, inside the UN system they have no power. Sure, sure. No, I'm so not talking about the UN system. Inside that system, it doesn't work that way. In right. the global space of things, Norway is deeply embedded in the European Union. The European Union is where most of the human rights. Uh, I'm not sure, they're uh, as deeply embedded in the European. Well, that's Norway. True, uh, not in Norway, but the Swedens and the Denmarks and sure. so forth. Sure, oil. They do all sorts of they other do. stuff. I mean, they, the, give all a lot of, they give a lot of money unilaterally and aid and all kinds of things. So they have a they have a presence. So. I'm just saying, like, use them as. So I don't know how to do this. Okay, so yeah. I, it's not it's not my job. Uh, <laughs> I'm thinking this whole idea of a poster boy, right? I mean, if you want to look at people who who uh, if you want to have an example of an institution or peoples or what have you that are pursuing uh, an enlightened human rights agenda. Uh, that that can be largely decoupled from their own particular economic self-interest or imperialistic self-interest or however you want to put it, um, it would be nice to be able to highlight that in a way that they can be used as an exemplar that would be less antagonizing to people in China, say, than if you start talking about the United States or if you start talking about, about right. the, the countries like that. So I'm not sure that a poster boy is the right way to think about this process, or let me put it this way, I, I, I wouldn't think about the process in that way, precisely because there will always be economic and national interests that we have to acknowledge that they're there, and we right. can't pretend that they're not there, and right. even Norway has them. Sure. There will always be animosities between countries, so it's absolutely correct that the United States lecturing the Chinese is much less likely to be effective than potentially some other, the process in ASEAN, for example, that's developing where you have a regional concept of Asian values, Asian institutions. And that's going to have much more impact in China than the United States lecturing the Chinese. Sure. So I wouldn't think about it in terms of any one poster bar. I would acknowledge that all of these players are operating under their own national interests. Their national interests are quite varied. So what Norway wants is very different than what the United States wants. They're both going after human rights, but they're doing it in very different places and in very different ways. The colonial ties are important there. But I think this is a really important moment in history particularly for countries like South Africa that you mentioned, and um, Brazil and India, China, to a lesser extent, who are going to have to decide and whether they're going to take a role of stewardship or not, whether human rights are going to be something that they are continued to be targeted for, or whether they're going to start using human rights in their foreign diplomacy. Because can you imagine what would happen in the South American context if Brazil became a powerful advocate for human rights would have tremendous Absolutely. more impact in South America than the United States ever will have Absolutely. given our history. Could you imagine? Now, Chile has already begun to do this in, a, uh, in Costa Rica, right? There's some examples of this emerging, these smaller countries. I wouldn't think of them as poster boys, but they have a tremendous potential to shape what happens w with regards to human rights in the region. And I think that's equally true in, for South Africa. Uh, and also in the ASEAN um, region. So rather than poster boys, if anything, it's my hope that this concept of stewardship shouldn't just be a Norway thing. 
shouldn't just be an EU thing or a US thing or an Australia thing, but that it will develop stronger roots in regional powers. Because the systems are already there, right? The institutions and the courts, and there are already systems of regionally based laws. So the question is, who's going to step up to the plate of any of these powers? And I don't know what the answer to that is. But if they don't, they're going to increasingly find themselves targets. And if they do, they have the potential to tremendously shape what goes on in the regions in ways that could be highly beneficial because it takes the pressure off of the United States to have to go lecture China, which is never going to work. Sure. What, what have the responses been to this view that you're promulgating now and you've been promulgating for some time? What, what, are, what are you hearing, not only within the world of scholarship, but from within the world of advocacy, people on the ground, institutions within the United Nations framework, all the rest of that? Yes, it's actually been quite positive, um, particularly from people who uh, work in the United Nations system and around the UN system and who are very familiar. They're, they've been very sympathetic to, to these claims, I think in, in, in part because part of the, the job here is to take the burden off of the whole thing being on the United Nations system, right? To recognize its quibbles and so forth to see if we can help. But we can't just rely on that as the central node anymore. It can't be the only game in town. Um, and I think that's been seen as a welcome message. I think the most controversial part about, uh, about this in terms of the reactions that I've received are really about how you think about the essence of what legitimizes this process. And this returns us to our conversation about power and whether power fundamentally, the utilization of power in a partial hierarchical way fundamentally undermines the legitimacy of a universal system of norms in a way that's detrimental or whether that's just sort of a reality we can live with and that means can, to an end. A yeah. means to an end yeah. and maybe an imperfect means to what is a better end. Yeah. And there have been disagreements on that. The, the, my, my viewpoint, as I've made very clear to you, is that I'm deeply concerned about allowing more and more deeply repressive governments to sign on to a series of institutions that they then essentially ignore when it's in their interest to do so because it fundamentally delegitimizes the entire process, the car analogy, the speeding analogy that I gave you. Mm. But the alternative perspective, and I, and I think it has merit, I, I don't happen to agree with it, but I think it has merit, is that the way you get legitimacy in this process is by opening the door to everybody. It's not by being exclusive, it's by being inclusive. You want to change how Saudi Arabia treats women, you bring them into the system and you socialize them in the system and you make them write reports on the status of women and you bring them into the system, it's a dialogue. Yeah. That's an alternative perspective that I think has great theoretical merit that empirically I don't see having real traction or having traction in, again, that narrower slice of countries in the middle, those old authoritarian countries that need a little hand-holding and pulling along. Yeah. You want to include those. You want to include those people in the system. Absolutely, I don't think you want to include North Korea in the system. I think there's a fair number of insincere commitments, but they're here. So we're not going to make those go away. The question is, are we going to encourage more of them, and are we going to create more institutions that can encourage more of them? But just to play devil's advocate, that's the biggest response. Okay, sorry. Just to play devil's advocate, to to if you were someone. Uh, Maybe we should put it the other way around. If, if I'm someone who's going to be an advocate for this expansionist universal approach, that the goal should be we, we should have more and more establishment of norms, more and more countries should adhere to more and more treaties, and 
and acknowledge publicly that they believe in these shared values, and then somehow by some osmosis uh, time-evolving process, um, they will start um, taking those, those ideas on uh, truthfully, or they will start gaining greater and greater impact, and they will start believing them themselves. Um, if I'm advocating these views and you turn to me and you say, um, okay, Howard, uh, but the problem with that is that if you actually look at the impact of this, it hasn't really happened the way you're saying. Would my response then be, oh, well, it just needs more time? I mean, what, what would my coherent response be, or you're wrong in terms of your assessment of impact? Because, I mean, logically, I don't have that many options to be able to respond to that. Some people will argue that it's wrong. Some people will find individual occasions of success. So you have to remember when I'm talking to you, I'm talking to you about big historical trends. Sure. So I'm talking to you in probabilities. It would be well, you're a statistician, after all. I'm a statistician <laughs> after all. It would be wrong of me to say that these laws have never had any impact on anyone ever in an authoritarian country. Of course they have. So they would find particular instances where maybe that's mattered. Now, that might be one instance in a population of hundreds of thousands where it didn't. Um, but one success is still one success, and one success is always worth celebrating. The question is whether it's worth the resources put towards that one success versus the alternatives. So there would be some who would argue uh, with the notion that these laws don't work. There will be others who would argue that's a matter of time. Many countries will, uh, many people would bring up Chile as a good example. Um, so here's a country which is quite interesting that under the dictator Pinochet ratified the Convention Against Torture. This is a treaty that outlaws torture, torture based in the United Nations. Years later, uh, in, in, in part due to this commitment that was completely insincere that he made at the time, uh, for domestic political reasons, he came under trial, uh, eventually died before he went to jail, but the law came back to bite him. And so there are, people will, will, will show that there will be cases over time. Now, my particular response to that is that at the time that countries democratize, they almost all instantly sign on to all the treaties that they haven't already signed on to. So there's nothing that says you need to keep a dictator in a system. So 20 years later, when the regime falls, when Mugabe is finally out in Zimbabwe, all of a sudden, and Changarai is there. Uh, that you know, the the legal structure will be there. It doesn't. It, it didn't require Mugabe to have ratified. By the way, he ratified lots of them. So, but Zimbabwe participates deeply in this system. But so we have diff differences of an opinion about what role time. Sure, but I was asking. I was asking there. I was uh, what what their response would be because it's it's uh, it seems to me there are only. I don't want to beat this to death, but it seems to me there are only two possibilities. One is oh no, uh, your assessment that this isn't actually efficacious is wrong, or relatively wrong, or it's just as efficacious, if not more, than any strategy you might have. And the other is, oh, well, it's not really working that well, but it just hasn't been given enough time. Like, right. It's not clear logically they have anywhere else to go no, other, other than both, that. Both arguments, and both arguments are, are possible. Yeah. And if you think about sort of what the lawyers will tell you about the theories of how law works, there's a couple of different ways. The criminologists will tell you this, right, even, is you're going to obey a law for one of two reasons. That's really quite, well, one of three reasons. Either it's in your interest, so it's completely coincidental and the law had nothing to do with it whatsoever. I'm going to coerce the heck out of you so you're going to be afraid of going to jail if you break the law, or I convince you that the law is fundamentally legitimate. And that might take a process of deliberation. I may have to convince you. It may be a, a process of argumentation, and the lawyers firmly believe that both of those things are the way the law works. In human rights, there's very little coercion that's happening inside the institutions. 
thus the need for state power. So what is the law doing? It's functioning much more through these persuasive, deliberative, let's all get into the room and talk about it. And maybe you don't believe in women's rights today, but if we just keep writing reports and we just keep issuing observances that say you need to do a better job protecting the rights of women in your country, eventually that might happen. And it does, it works. It just doesn't, it isn't likely to work in most places, especially where the abuses are worst. It's likely to have the most impact in this small slice of middling countries. Right. Well, one thing we haven't talked about and wasn't mentioned very much in your book, and I'm not sure what to say about it, but it strikes me as being important, is the role of the media. So we talk about it in a negative way, right? Something flares up, something's in Syria, and then all of a sudden everyone focuses on Syria, and this is this, this, you know, attention span of a knot as people go right. from, from, from one place to another. Um, but it, I'm not sure I'm suggesting anything. I'm just wondering aloud. Um, we seem to have a situation, at least according to you, and, and an argument which has certainly convinced me, which is at the very, very least, we should have an open dialogue about these things. Mm -hmm. At the very least, we should look at what the impact has been and ask ourselves some hard questions about where we might go more effectively in the future if we really do believe in the promotion of these, uh, these fundamental rights and freedoms that we say we believe in, we should actually look and see, is it working, and how might we best improve it? Um, that's a call for some sort of international, honest dialogue. And it's hard to imagine that happening without media involvement. Mm -hmm. I don't know how to do it, and I'm not suggesting the media be directed <laughs> to do that. But do you have any ideas by which one can engage uh, with, the, with the mass media and the popular media in some more coherent way to be able to develop that further? You know, that's not a question I've spent a lot of time thinking about, but it's a really interesting question, and I, I agree with you, it's, in, it's incredibly important. The, the issue with regards to the media, and I've actually done some work on this with the person I mentioned to you earlier, James Ron, who did the work on Amnesty International, he and I have also done some work together on the media. Mm -hmm looking at um, the New York Times, The Economist, Newsweek, a variety of different um, North American or European-based news sources and on what they report on with regards to human rights and on which atrocities they're focusing attention on. And we've been able to show something very similar, which is that the media, of course, have a variety of different incentives to report that are not necessarily based on the efficacy of changing the human rights system, nor are they necessarily based on how bad a situation is. So the sort of vantage, if it leads, it bleeds. If it bleeds, it leads, yeah. isn't actually correct, uh, which is to say the media will, just like human rights organizations, over-focus on some areas and under-focus on others. And that has to do with their markets and a whole variety of, of complex uh, complex things. Unite is there, is there a sorry to interrupt, no, but I want to get back. Is there a distinction between them? So I would, naively, I would like to think anecdotally, that The Economist does a better job in these, in these things. Can you say that? Can you say that there, there's a more Im, impartial or, or responsible or, or, or non-judgmental uh, way of looking at this? Or no. can you not make distinctions? No, we cannot make distinctions about that. What we can show you is that the media, including The Economist, over-reports on things that happened in Latin America for reasons that we can hmm. only speculate. Hmm. Um, probably a lot to do with the colonial ties uh, hmm. and a variety, uh, and the, the genesis of the human rights movement, which was really in Latin America, is very good at attracting media attention. Hmm. You can look at equivalent or substantially worse atrocities in Africa, for example, and those things are not, are not getting reported in, hmm. the, in the same way. So the biases are inherent, but I cannot differentiate sure, between. Sure. I can't tell you that The Economist is better 
than Newsweek or the New York Times. Or tell example. me it's worse. I, I just yeah, wonder like what, what, what you're thinking. Yeah, or whether no, you I, don't, can do that. I don't know the answer to that question. But it is the case that within, within the United Nations system, uh, one of the crises that they now recognize and has been on the books there for quite some time is that they have a huge public relations problem. So one way to begin this conversation is to do it through the United Nations context. Uh, they have a huge public relations problem because while everybody sort of inherently knows what a human rights is, right? If you're tortured, you know that someone's violating your right. But the world, including the highly educated world, is incredibly ignorant about what these institutions are. So you might know that you're being tortured, but you have no idea what your legal recourse is. Right. You don't even know that there are treaties out there, and if you do, you wouldn't even know how you would access the law. You wouldn't, you wouldn't know where to get help. You wouldn't know that you could file complaints uh, and that there would be oversight bodies that could potentially help you uh, and right. so on and, and so forth. So as a result, the United Nations has come to the conclusion that it needs to do a much better job of actually publicizing what it does. Uh, and, and what's out there. And what's out there. And of course, the, the, the internet has helped to sure. spread that type of information. But it is, it's entirely possible um, that there would need to be some work on behalf of, I mean, why did the advocacy organizations do this? This, this you know, they have the media's eye. They work very, very closely. Amnesty International, US State Department, they're working all very closely with the media. So, I want to hear the advocates call for this broader discussion, and that would probably get into the mainstream media relatively quickly. And I bet the United Nations would um, be happy to set up a working group, as they are happy to set up working groups on uh, sure, other just issues, about on just about anything, <laughs> with the support of, of advocates. But some of those working groups uh, go somewhere. Some of those working groups sure. matter. Sure. So that's the process that would have to play out. Anything I missed? Anything you wanted to talk about? Uh, that we Gosh, I don't think so. We could continue on for hours, but yeah. we probably shouldn't. <laughs> oh, I, I want to let you uh, get back. Thank you very much. Oh, thank for, you. It was for, a really interesting it was, conversation. It was really a lot of fun. I hope you enjoyed this reformatted podcast. As mentioned at the outset, this conversation is also available both as an individual ebook and as part of the ebook and paperback Conversations About Law along with separate discussions with Nita Farahani, Elizabeth Loftus, Julian Roberts, and Ellen Sachs. Those interested in more information about Ideas Roadshow are directed to ideasroadshow.com, while those who are curious about me and other projects I'm involved in are recommended to visit howardburton.com. Thanks very much for listening, and I hope you'll tune into another Ideas Roadshow podcast on the New Books Network soon. We release a new one each Wednesday.